Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. We're excited to have with us uh, our old friend, Emily Shears. She's the Vice President of Quality for Northern Pennsylvania and New York with UPMC. And uh, Emily, thanks for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All righty. So, boy, you know, uh, I feel like we are are running away from COVID, but COVID isn't done with us, you know? Uh, Do you get that sense that people want to be done with the pandemic Yet it just seems to kind of continue to flow through the community, even at a low rate. Yes. Unfortunately, I think we all would like to see the days of the pandemic end. Um, But what's unique um, about COVID is that we certainly see variants that seem to, as you said, come back to haunt us. So where are we, where are we at now, like from your point of view, um, do you guys worry about, okay, this one has BA, this one has BA2 or what have you, or is it all about what are the presenting symptoms and how sick people are when they present at the ER? Yeah, so COVID testing all along um, at the patient level or point of care, essentially where we do the testing, does not identify the strain or the variant. So from our standpoint, it's really what symptoms is someone presenting with. That could be anything, obviously, from a heart attack to respiratory symptoms. Now, the respiratory symptoms, certainly COVID, influenza, other respiratory viral illnesses are what we test for. So we don't know the strain, um, but once we test positive for COVID, then we are certainly treating the symptoms that can be associated with that illness. All right, so let's break this down from the worst to maybe the more mild. If someone is presenting at the ER, um, what are some of the, the telltale signs of a very severe case of COVID as we sit with, with the pandemic, this t- uh, you know, or 2022, two years plus into it? Yeah, so certainly the, the symptoms for severe, severe COVID um, are remaining similar, meaning oxygen status, so people are struggling to maintain the levels of oxygen in their blood that they need um, to be healthy in terms of normal functioning. We see pneumonia. Um, So patients can develop a viral pneumonia, or certainly if they've had prolonged illness with COVID, they can have what's um, considered a bacterial pneumonia or kind of like a secondary lung infection based on a lot of the fluid. So we see severe uh, congestion, lots and lots of drainage, but we see people need support mostly with um, breathing and pulmonary function. And then certainly when you're sick with viral illnesses, it can affect any other chronic uh, health conditions that a person has. So if they have heart failure or kidney disease or diabetes, it can certainly have other effects on the body as well. What would that be, what would that be like? Uh, I mean, basically, uh, if, if their kidneys start to fail, like they would go into dialysis kind of 
scenario? Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever body system um, that would be needed support. Um, yeah, that could be an example if someone um, had what we would say multi-organ failure or different uh, organ system mm -hmm. failure, that we would have to provide support. And when people get severely ill. Um, and respiratory status starts to decline, it can certainly affect all the other processes in the body. So, and again, every person is very unique. Um, we can have individuals with comorbid conditions that may have a mild course of illness, and then certainly we have seen very severe cases and even uh, fatalities from COVID as well. Yeah, I was going to ask if, if some of the course of action, some of the courses of action that you do um, are able to bring people back uh, from, you know, just a severe case. Um, it, I mean, you. I mean, we're in a different place than we were, where where people would be intubated and stay in the hospital for months and and maybe come back out. Or am I? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Where are we? I guess. No, we, we certainly do have more treatments now than okay. we did at the very beginning of the pandemic. We do have targeted antiviral treatments. We have monoclonal antibodies. Those have all shown um, and supported us in helping patients overcome COVID illness. So I would say those things have um, made the treatment plans more successful overall. Um, and so we use those as indicated by the patient's severity of illness, where they are in the course of their illness, and also, you know, what other um, comorbidities or other, you know, kind of chronic diseases that patients have, um, if we're able to do that to support them. But we certainly have had, you know, lots of patients have to go on a ventilator, but successfully get off of the ventilator or breathing support um, and be discharged from the hospital. So great success stories here. All right. So let's back off uh, of the, the severe uh, case. Let's just say somebody's coming and presenting at an urgent care, at primary care. They've got sore throat, you know, they've got the flowing, you know, out of their sinuses. Um, but they don't know if, if it's covert or not. What's the, what's the, uh, the approach to, to those folks? So if you have illness, you know, if you're at home and you have illness, as you mentioned, new onset of respiratory symptoms. So the thing with COVID, as we mentioned before, it's, it's not necessarily a unique symptom presentation. It can be varied. Some people have, um, you know, more of a sinus or head cold. Some have sore throat. Some have fever and cough. Um, and others certainly can have loss of taste and smell. So there's a variety of symptoms. Um, if you suspect you have a new onset of illness, obviously we recommend quick testing. We recommend people stay home until they know what they might have in terms of an illness. Um, there's, you know, the, the availability of home antigen testing is much more uh, readily available now. I've seen in multiple pharmacies and drugstores, um, whereas through the surges, it was, you know, a little more difficult to find. So we certainly recommend people have those things at home to be able to do. But if they feel their illness is severe enough to require external testing, then somewhere like a physician office or um, urgent care can also do that testing for them as well. And what puts a little unique twist this year is we have had influenza circulating as well. So certainly that can that could be a cause of illness um, at this time. And uh, but to be clear, influenza won't show up as a positive on a COVID test. If you 
if you do an antigen test and you you get that that line showing up, that's COVID generally. Correct. Correct. The COVID antigen tests are specific to the COVID virus, and um, a, a separate test would be needed uh, to tease out any other viral illness. Emily Shears is with us. She's from UPMC. couple more questions, Emily. Let's talk about all the other things that the hospital does to keep our community well. And again, let's say uh, we've got a spouse or a child or a parent going in for hip surgery or going going in because um, you know they they need some kind of help. Maybe that you're having a baby. Maybe it's a it's a joyful moment. What are the protocols <laughs> yes. these days? Yes, great question. So our inpatient, so that does include labor and delivery, pediatrics. Um, as you mentioned, it would be for surgical patients and anyone inpatient. Um, the patient is able to identify two support people, um, and both of those people may visit at the same time. And so they are able to have, um, you know, those people in and out. However, we do still require universal masking as a requirement for entry. And um, we currently don't allow children under the age of 18. So those have all held true. It's, um, they have been successful measures for us to keep our patients and our staff safe. Have you actually noticed, are there any metrics network-wide about how this um, has kind of kept the spread of hospital-borne illness down? Well, we do track all of that. That can be difficult. We certainly throughout the pandemic and, and throughout the health system have identified times where even an identified support person may have spread COVID um, to an individual when we're having record high numbers in the community. Yeah. Um, but overall, statistics are really hard to tease out when we have those major surges as we have had the past two years. And the reason is the community pressure, even for our staff and our patients, is so high um, that we are, are able to really confidently say that the majority of our staff exposures and our patient illness do come from community exposures versus hospital. Gotcha. And we have not relaxed our masking requirement throughout the pandemic, and I do think that's been successful for us. Um, and we consider when, when everyone is masked, you know, the patient, the staff, we see that risk of exposure extremely low versus if everyone was not wearing masks and say someone was, you know, coughing or had illness, um, similar to what the risk would have been in the community. So I don't have exact numbers for you, but we certainly have seen that successful, which is why we've maintained those protocols. Yeah, I didn't know if uh, on it, you know, if we were rolling back to 2018 or 19, you know, uh, how much of the stuff that you guys deal with, whether it's staff and all the things that, you know, you're, you, you really fight like, uh, like uh, with intensity to keep down in the hospital, how much of that would be typically uh, spread by visitors vis-a-vis -vis, uh, now where, you know, we're really locked down and everybody's wearing a mask, you know, it, just if it's, if this might turn out to be kind of a, a long-term protocol, you know? Yeah, well, what a lot of uh, community members, I would say, don't realize is that when we had respiratory illnesses and influenza is a great example of that, or RSV, which is common 
in children. When those patients are in the hospital, we did require masking for our staff um, and for visitors. So while they were in the room or in the presence of those patients, we did wear masks. And that's really how we know and how infection prevention um, and, you know, dictated by the CDC, we call those transmission-based precautions. Gotcha. And so, you know, early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of debate about droplet and airborne. And really what that meant to us is do we wear a regular mask or an N95 mask, which can filter airborne size particles. So we've historically actually masked uh, very frequently in hospitals for care settings. And so, um, you know, when this occurred and when the presence was so, um, I guess we had so much saturation of COVID and other respiratory illnesses, that's why the masking we know is effective. All right. Uh, and one last question about masks. Uh, with community level by the CDC still low, um, you're just requiring some kind of a mask. When do you think that it would be required to do the N95 or the KN95 or or at least a surgical mask? And, and are those readily available for those two primary visitors of an inpatient? Yes, we actually have the surgical masks to provide for those individuals when they come into the hospital. Um, you know, a lot of people have used um, different methods of masking, and that's why we do recommend and provide the surgical level mask. Now, N95s um, can be difficult to breathe through. They certainly filter a lot higher percent of particles, and staff and OSHA really require um, our staff to be fit tested to those so they properly sure. seal and fit to be, you know, the most effective in terms of filtering. So we do, with care of our COVID patients, have our staff wear an N95 mask, and that's really just in case there's aerosolization of the particles, you know, based on a breathing treatment or ventilation. Um, or high flow oxygen. And so we do step it up for our staff at that level, but do provide the surgical masks for everyone else. One last question, and, and I'll let you go, Emily. Uh, vaccinations, you don't hear too much about it. I mean, there, there just kind of seems to be, you know, it comes and goes. We saw a bit of a surge of vaccinations when Omicron was kind of bearing down in January and February. Uh, what, from your perspective, what are we looking at? Well, in terms of our hospitalized staff, we have um, the OSHA requirement, the, the CMS requirement to have all of our staff vaccinated, which we're thankful to say that we've achieved compliance with that measure. Um, now, in the community, um, we understand there's lots of confusion with the number of booster shots available. Yeah. So for, for community members, we do recommend that they talk to their primary care physician about which vaccine schedule or dosing in terms of boosters would be most effective for them. I'm going to leave it there. Emily Shear, she's the Vice President of Equality for Northern Pennsylvania, New York with UPMC. Thank you, Emily. Appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Live via Zoom is Dr. Christopher Clark. He is the head of AHN St. Vincent here in Erie. Uh, my old stomping grounds from, gosh, now, Dr. Clark, 42 years ago when, <laughs> when I was uh, washing walls and moving patients up in the OR. It was, it, was a glor it was a glorious way to make a living as a college student, I got to tell you.
That that's great. Uh, you know, we certainly recognize everyone's role um, in in contributing to taking care of our patients here. So what you did back then was equally important to everyone else's role here for sure. So, but I'm happy to be on the the show today, Joel. We're we're grateful for that. Let's let's get a handle on from your perspective, AHN St. Vincent, the COVID hospitalizations. Have you seen any movement? We we had seen a steady. No, I wouldn't say it was a cliff of hospitalizations that dropped off, yet it was like a, a steady downslope, if you will. But now it seems like that downslope has kind of slowed down. What are you seeing, Dr. Clark? Well, you know, we are paying close attention, as we always have been uh, for the last couple of years, and what's happening in the community as it relates to the number of people being tested, the positivity rate, and so forth. And it's been slower, for sure, uh, you know, connected to hospitalizations over the last couple of months, but also very steady. So for for literally just about two months, uh, we've had a consistent number of people being hospitalized, um, and it definitely is much less than what we saw in the fall to January timeframe, for sure. What what? How are they presenting? What what is it? How sick do you have to be? in order to be admitted at St. Vincent's? Yeah, so, you know, as it relates to COVID, I mean, it, it, what we're seeing is um, that most of our patients that are testing positive for COVID and requiring hospitalization are actually requiring hospitalization for other reasons. Okay. So that's, that's still the case as I've been um, seeing and promoting and, and reporting for the last few months. Um, I'm not saying that COVID doesn't have an impact on some of our patients because it can, and it tends to be patients that have other chronic medical conditions, particularly lung disease, um, could can have more of an impact if you are are um, testing positive with COVID. But we definitely are seeing more patients in the hospital uh, that are here primarily for other reasons that just incidentally are testing positive. Okay, that is a huge distinction. If you ask me, so uh, I mean, if somebody comes in with a with a, a heart attack, an MI, oh yeah, and they have COVID, it, you're worried about the MI. You're worried about the blockages and putting the stin in and all that stuff. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and you know, maybe there is um, something that that we need to do from a management perspective for the COVID. So, for example, we're following the oxygen levels and and in uh, giving oxygen supplementation or maybe some of the medications if we think that it contributes to some degree. But but like I mentioned, it could be someone that's here for a, a surgical condition, a, an orthopedic condition, and they're incidentally testing positive because they were exposed outside of the hospital and it's just now they start to develop even just minor symptoms. And again, you have to report and it goes to the state's dashboard uh, that this is a COVID patient, even though they might be, they, you know, they might be in the uh, ICU with a total hip recovery. So, so yes, I mean, that is indeed the case that uh, these get reported the same way. Um, the other thing I will call out is that these patients are still de- take, being taken care of in the hospital, in special sections of the hospital. Okay. And in particular, no matter what they're here for, they're in a respiratory isolation room, a negative airflow room. Even though it might not be for COVID why they're here, we're, we're still taking care of them with the same precautions. 
Do you uh, j- just a, just kind of a thirty thousand foot question here? But do you see that maybe hospital design is going to change to these kinds of heavy airflow rooms for everybody? Because aren't you seeing positive outcomes on on just the uh, kind of the sheer lowering of hospital born illness uh, because of some of the mitigation efforts that the, the hospitals have had to take? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's so much attention on infection control. Always has been. But but notably, that's one of the lessons learned and, and silver lining that's come from the, the pandemic. Um, and then more specifically at AHN St. Vincent, we've tripled our number of air, negative airflow rooms um, as a result of preparing for um, the surges that we went through and so forth. So we have many more of those respiratory isolation rooms than we had previously. I, I want you to kind of walk us through um, where we're at with the pandemic as far as personal risk assessment, because there's still COVID that goes around, even though we're considered low community level, everybody's got a story, you know, uh, you know, uh, somebody's kid got COVID uh, at, at college and then their whole dorm gets COVID or their whole wing, it, you know, but, you know, they get a cold and they're out for three days and they're feeling better. Uh, it's still like it's like out there kind of, you know, the, the Kevin Bacon six degrees of separation kind of thing. What should people be doing on a personal risk assessment uh, if they if they don't feel like that they're in that they're super compromised? I mean, there is the vast majority of people don't have these huge immuno uh, uh, compromised situations, but they want to stay safe. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, we, I guess the one thing to partially answer your question, at least, is to just everyone still needs to uh, be very diligent. Um, it, it, it's it's still out there. COVID is is certainly um, a risk, and and um, and quite frankly, we're seeing some more evidence of more people being tested. The positivity rate is up over the, over the last week, um, and so we've seen in our Pittsburgh hospitals that the, there's a, a slight increase in the number of hospitalizations as well. Even though it's still you know more of an incidental uh, positivity that's coming back, um, but I think. You know, as it relates to people's um, risk factors, I'm going to start with promoting uh, the opportunity to be vaccinized, vaccinated, excuse me. <laughs> um, so uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, um, always, you know, reconsider that decision. Um, but if you have gone through the, the series of the of the vaccines, uh, consider getting that booster. If it's been four, more than four months since your last booster and uh, if you're greater than 50, um, or if you have uh, chronic medical conditions uh, below the age of 50, um, I, I would uh, look very seriously at getting that booster anytime soon if it's been more than four months. What are you seeing with the booster? Uh, I, I want to make sure I understand this because, um, you know, there there was a lot of folks that got the booster right before Omicron or in the middle of Omicron. You saw that, you know, those big lines down at the uh, uh, that, the convention center, Um uh, so and so now we're almost four months from that. I mean, how many boosters should people be getting or uh, or if you've had the the initial you know, like a Pfizer series or Moderna series, is the one booster, you know, that was six or eight months later good enough or, or, or should that second booster be on on the uh, menu? 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, we we got to go with what we know right now. Okay. And so the recommendation is for people to get that second booster, which would be a total of four shots yeah. for, for immunocompetent people above the age of 50. And if you're immunocompromised um, or have chronic medical conditions less than the age of 50, you can certainly consider uh, for that reason as well. So is there any downside to the booster? Um, they're written, it's all the same as what, um, was advised and recommended previously. So I get that uh, question sometimes, uh, like from my patients, the booster is the same shot as it was previously. So, um, there's nothing different about the, 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 the vaccine at this point. So it's the same dose, um, based on what your age was, for example. Um, so it's the same uh, conversation uh, previously discussed uh, what the uh, potential side effects would be from it, okay. uh, for example. Um, so uh, so that partially answers your question. But um, I, I think that's the place to start, though, Joel, uh, is consider getting uh, vaccinated or get the booster. Um, and then there's the other things that you could do to mitigate your risk. So just realize that COVID is still out there. And if you're... Um, you know, out in, in big, um, at, you know, at events or in, in public, that there's certainly the, the possibility of contracting COVID because it's still present, particularly these newer strains that are out. Yeah, I mean, everybody's doing everything, Dr. Clark, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the Civic Center was full last night. The 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 uh, the, the uh, Philharmonic was doing Star Wars to a packed audience on Saturday. People have really embraced this kind of coming back to normal. And so, um, you know, at, 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 at what point do you, does your head have to switch and say, you know what, uh, I got the, you know, I would get the flu sometimes or I wouldn't get the flu, but I never stopped my activity. Um, you know, we never even thought about immunocompromised or other things that we have going on with this, with other, with other, um, you know, other diseases, other viruses. Is this thing so much different that we need to really have our, our, our antennas tuned? Well, it, you know, it certainly was. I mean, we, we've seen more virulent strains and when more was recommended as it relates to um, social distancing and mask wearing. Yeah. But Joel, as you just described it, I totally get it. I mean, everyone wants things to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. What I just, I want people to realize that there are things that you can do to mitigate your particular risk, it, particularly based on your age and your, your, if you have any uh, chronic medical conditions and so forth. So it starts with vaccination uh, for sure. And, and what the vaccine does, I didn't emphasize this enough, but it, it clearly can uh, reduce one's risk for having a complication. And, and that includes requiring hospitalization for COVID. So um, the vaccine can make a difference. It may not protect you from getting COVID, but it certainly has great evidence for reducing risk of having complications. And like I previously mentioned so far, what we're seeing with these latest strains, uh, these Omicron subvariants that are out there, um, is that it, they're highly contagious, but less likely to cause um, you know, the, uh, hospitalization and so forth. So with that setting in mind and something that you can do, which is the, the vaccine, um, then I, I, I do support people doing what they feel uh, comfortable in doing being out in the community. All right, so let's say you, you pick it up, 
and uh, you know you, you you're starting to get some symptoms. You take one of those antigen tests where they were like just throwing them at you from the government, right? So, and you get you get the little line that shows up. Man, I got COVID. Uh, what should I do next? Let's say I want to go to one of the pavilions or at least call them. Can I get Pavlovid? Can I get this antiviral drug? Uh, you know, from my PCP, I mean, are there, are, you know, do I have tools in my toolbox to fight it if I contract it? Sure. I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too. So Paxlovid is the Pfizer product that's out and, uh, and available for, for patients that are testing positive. So um, the, the key thing about Paxlovid is that it really does need to get initiated uh, very early in the disease. So within four days, ideally, and even you know the the closer to the onset of symptoms, the better, and that's when it has its its greatest evidence of showing effectiveness in in decreasing complications. The other thing that's still readily available are the infusions for monoclonal antibodies, um, which there's definitely less demand for that uh, these days, but it is still available, and that's for older patients, particularly those that are immunocompromised. Uh, those with chronic chronic medical conditions, for sure. So there are things to do for people that test positive, but the point is, it's they're better. They're, there's more indications for them if if you have risk for complications, and the earlier you start those modalities, those treatments, the better. And again, your PCP should be able to uh, show you the way, right? Absolutely. Get in con- if you test positive at home with antigen testing, the the sooner you get with your PCP, you know. Connecting them, connecting them uh, through phone call or through the uh, like AHN my chart, the better, so that that Paxlovid medicine could be considered. Let, let's talk about uh, protocols at the hospital and things. Again, you guys haven't uh, let up. I, I mean, I'm sure you're getting all the ortho cases. You're getting, uh, you know, have, make you know delivering the babies and uh, you know you know fixing the. Uh, fixing the chronic lung and the the chronic heart uh, conditions. Um, how does it work if I have a loved one in the hospital? Okay, yeah. So a couple months ago now, I think is when we changed our visitation policy to allow for an additional visitor. So there are visitation restrictions still that remain in most health systems, uh, just because the more people that are around, the more risk there is to other patients and our staff for COVID to be spread. But we do at AHN uh, allow for two visitors per patient. Um, and those two visitors ideally are the same people for a 24 hour period. So they can be rotated every 24 hours, but we do try to mitigate risk by reducing the number of visitors in total. Um, not ideal, I get it. Um, and we do the best we can with uh, adaptations from there and modifications from there but we do have that policy in place to reduce the two visitor, visitors per patient. And they're, everybody's still masked. Uh, I mean, are you requiring N95s or is a surgical mask uh, appropriate? How's that work? Sure, so we are upholding the Pennsylvania Department of Health expectation. And I, I, I really wanna emphasize that because we do need to explain that to some of our patients and visitors who don't see any other mask requirements out there but in hospitals and healthcare settings, it is a Pennsylvania Department of Health requirement. So we do have uh, a mass requirement for everybody. Um, and we do recommend a healthcare mask 
um, as opposed to a cloth mask. If, if anyone needs a healthcare mask, like a surgical mask, we do have them available at the entrances at our facilities. A N95 or an N95 or we, our staff also uses N100s. They are not required for visitors or patients. N95s are not required. Um, we do recommend the healthcare masks though. Uh, when push comes to shove, are you seeing now that um, the patients are coming in for their screenings, Dr. Clark? I mean, are we are we getting back to that nom- normal uh, area that we're catching the, the, the cancers, we're catching the lung disease, we're catching the things that had been kind of uh, not not observed uh, during the during the height of the pandemic anyway? You know, I do believe we are catching up, um, and our outpatient visits are very, very busy, very, are very, very high numbers on the outpatient side for sure. And it, I think it's in large part of uh, the, the catch up for people, patients that have delayed their routine and screening care. Um, but we need to continue to encourage, I'm not going to take it for granted that things are happening as they should. And a, a strong message to the audience right now. For, for people to get connected to their primary care physicians uh, for your routine care, for your age and gender specific screening, uh, because I am concerned that we will see more later stage diagnoses of chronic diseases or cancers because of what we've gone through in the last couple years. Um, the other thing I'll call out, we had a, for that reason, Joel, we had at AHN a cancer screening event at the East Side Pavilion in Harbor Creek on April 23rd. We had over 100 people come in that day to get all kinds of appropriate uh, cancer screening testing um, for for patients. So um, we need to do, and we will be planning more of those type of events. Did you pick uh, up some stuff that may have been undiagnosed? You should you know, have I, wow. I've heard anecdotally yeah. of a few cases, and wow. I, I haven't received, received a report on it just yet. But I have I, I was out there that day um, to thank the team for the work that they were doing. And uh, anecdotally, I did hear of um, some concerning exams and tests. Yes. Wow. We'll leave it there again. You know, get you know, got got to get this stuff done. Mammograms, the uh, uh, what is it? PSA. I can't remember all the numbers, but uh, I mean, all these super important yearly things that you got to do, you know. That, that's right. Colon cancer screening, very, very important. If you qualify for lung cancer screening because of, for example, a tobacco history use, um, use history, uh, definitely recommend uh, for sure. Dr. Christopher Clark, uh, AHN, St. Vincent's, uh, he's the lead there. Thank you so, so much for your time and uh, your generosity. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Joel. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Dr. Marcus Babiak, the COO and Pharmacy Director at Lecom Health is. Uh, Dr. Babiak, we appreciate you coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joel. Appreciate the opportunity. All righty. So, um, you know, kind of give us uh, kind of your your perspective on where COVID is at uh, when in regards to Lecom Health. You've got so many different slices to this because you've got the students, you know, that are that are over there learning uh, how to be doctors, and you have, you know, you know, you have uh, the hospitals like uh, uh, Mill Creek and and Corey, 
Um, but then all the other things, the senior living center and all that, you got a lot of, a lot of going on here. So what, what's your point of view for, for COVID with all of those constituencies? Well, Joel, you know, I think first and foremost, I think it's most important to recognize that, you know, while our case counts are still currently low here in Erie County, COVID is not over, you know, and unfortunately right now we are seeing uh, an increase of COVID within the community. Uh, we have not really seen that increase in hospitalizations yet, but as we have seen from the historical data, those hospitalizations do usually lag uh, about one to two weeks behind those increasing case counts. Uh, unfortunately, the case counts in the community, as we've probably all seen from the numbers, are starting to increase again, and we're taking it from those uh, Omicron sub-variants that are now circulating, making up the predominant number of cases across the United States. It just seems really easy to get Omicron. Like, it, it, you know, when people thought that they had a solid game plan to, to fight off the virus, it's like they pick it up. You know, it just, uh, there's no rhyme or reason. Is that is that accurate? That is accurate. You know, the, the Omicron variant and then the Omicron subvariants are uh, significantly more transmissible than the original uh, coronavirus and then the Delta virus or the Delta variant, which we saw after that. So we are seeing it is, you know, so therefore it's a little bit theoretically easier to see to get the Omicron variant because it's increased transmissibility. Doesn't that lead to uh, like a sense of, uh, uh, you know, of re resignation, if you will. Oh, well, there's really nothing I can do about this. Are there still things that we can do to kind of lower our risk, uh, our, our risk level here? Uh, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, um, vaccination. Yeah. Uh, vaccination is the number one way to prevent hospitalization uh, from uh, COVID-19. It has been shown to be safe and effective at reducing hospitalization, and more importantly, death from the COVID virus. Uh, you know, the second is just to practice uh, good personal hygiene and good social hygiene. You know, masks still aren't mandatory uh, in most of the uh, county, the country. Uh, but, you know, practicing that, that, safe so that safe social distancing, you know, with it being more transmissible as Hopefully, as we start to gather here in the spring and summer, as it warms up, you know, we'll relieve some of that burden where we're stuck inside. But when there is a situation where we're inside, you know, practicing that social distancing, remaining six feet away from others, you know, when possible. Do you do you feel that um, that uh, as people kind of are trying to embrace normalcy, they're trying to go to the to the ball game or go to the concert or or, uh, you know, go to the, to the baby showers, um, that, that it is that, that we're able to kind of have a reasonable risk assessment. I, I mean, or should people be, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering, I guess it's, is it, is, is this all on an individual level at this point where, hey, if I'm, if I'm walking around with a severe compromised, um, in, uh, constitution, I really got to protect myself because I can't, I can't guarantee that the people around me have, uh, have, uh, you know, put their mitigation, um, factors in order. Is that act, is that a, uh, 
on to something. Yeah, like? I think it's a very accurate statement, Joel. You know, it, it's kind of uh, up to the individual and, and their uh, personal assessment of risk, you know, and, and those who are at higher risk uh, of not only contracting disease but uh, also of severe illness from when they would, if they were to contract the disease, those are the individuals that need to be, you know, of the highest concern. You know, so there, that's also the patient population who the vaccine is the most effective in. You're the pharmacy director at Lecom Health. I want you to talk about what's in your toolkit now that you really didn't have a year ago or even two years ago, including this antiviral drug. Uh, what's the promise of that Pfizer drug? Can you talk about that? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we have so many more tolls here today than not only when we had a year ago, but from when this virus first started. Uh, the one you're, you're discussing is Paxlovid. Uh, which is the oral antiviral, uh, which is, I, I really think, a game changer for most of the community. You know, prior to this, we only had uh, intravenous infusions for the treatment of COVID-19. But now we have an oral antiviral medication that, you know, as soon as an individual tests positive, he or she can start taking it uh, almost immediately uh, with a prescription from their physician. And it has been shown to reduce the severity and reduce hospitalizations from the COVID-19 infection. And, and, and are you saying that basically if I take one of those antigen tests that the government kind of poured down on us uh, a couple months ago I, and I see the little, the little line, I should call my PCP and just say, get me Paxilovid and, and just start taking? I mean, it's, it's that simple. There's, um, yeah. Um, it, unfortunately, it's not that simple. Okay. Uh, you know, it really is indicated for those individuals uh, who are at moderate to severe uh, risk of hospitalization from the COVID-19 infection. Okay. But absolutely. If you were to test positive, uh, the very first call I would be making would be uh, to my uh, family physician, uh, letting he or she know that I tested positive. Uh, he or she would then, you know, screen you to see if you would be an appropriate candidate to start the oral antivirals in order to prevent that chance of hospitalization. Do you, are you sensing that there's plenty of uh, inventory here in Erie available? Uh, absolutely. There's uh, plenty of inventory here available. Um, if you go on the Internet, uh, you can see a, a listing of all the pharmacies here in Erie County with which uh, it is readily available. Um, a majority of the pharmacies here in Erie County do have the drug in stock and available to be dispensed. I, I love how you said that's a game changer because I feel like, I mean, that is kind of like if if everything else that you did right still does doesn't stop you from getting COVID. You know, you got you got your you know your two courses of Pfizer, you got your booster, you know, during Omicron, um, you know. Maybe, maybe this one would work at least to keep you out of the hospital. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's talk about some of the other, you know, let's talk about more of a holistic approach here. You know, uh, Lecom Health and Milker Community Hospital so famous for their behavioral health, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, your in-person, what is it, the residential stuff and, and everything you do, um, uh, out there, uh, COVID has had a major impact on on the mental and behavioral health of 
especially of our children. And uh, I mean, can are you sensing that we are getting to a better place or is it still really hard for our kids uh, when it comes to the sense of isolation and some of the some of the things the kids are going through? I, I think we're getting uh, better, but we're definitely not out of the woods yet. You know, uh, there's still really the unspoken uh, secondary pandemic, uh, which is the, the behavioral health and mental health crisis that came along with the primary COVID pandemic. You know, just like you said, um, the, the periods of isolation, um, the, the lack of social supports with which, you know, we had all grown accustomed to our lives. And how for just the longest period of time we were, you know, told that we can't speak to people or we, we can't gather in groups, you know, we shouldn't um, associate with people outside of our household. So there has absolutely been a secondary uh, mental health pandemic that we're seeing as uh, an effect of the primary physical health pandemic. Do you do you feel like if, if someone, if there was a, a mom or a dad who – really wants to have their child see someone. Do we have an adequate uh, mental health uh, infrastructure here in Erie, especially for those that maybe are not, you know, that are not Medicaid patients, but, you know, just just regular health insurance patients? Can you actually see a mental health care provider in in short order, or are you going to be waiting weeks and, and months? Uh, unfortunately, Joel, I do not know the answer to that question. Okay. I'm not sure um, what our current, you know, um, time to see a physician is at our behavioral health clinics uh, here through Lecom Health or for some of the other clinics here in town. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I, I just feel I, I I wonder sometimes. You know, uh, I know that telehealth was a big deal during the pandemic, and but any any more, Doctor Babiak, it just feels like. It, it, you know, you wait a while to see a practitioner, especially a specialist. And I didn't know if if that was what we're seeing in, in behavioral health. All right, I want to I want to kind of bring this plane in for a landing here. And um, you know, I, one of the things that uh, you guys got going on is you have that that new Corey Hospital, right? And so, tell us about uh, kind of the challenges of fighting COVID with some of the prevailing uh, cultural attitudes that happen in, in rural communities. Uh, and I, I know I'm not far off in this because I've seen the, the statistics. Uh, sometimes the rural communities are not so up on believing that this is a real problem. I think, Joe, where we're seeing the you know, biggest uh, disparity is with the vaccination rate. Okay. You know, you can, um, you can the statistics are, are very evident, you know, uh, just uh, the the disparity in vaccinations between different counties, and even and from a you know a, a lower, more micro level, just even based upon zip codes in Erie in Erie County. Yeah, uh, there's just a a lot of vaccine hesitancy that still exists. A, a lot of distrust that needs to be overcame. And I think that that's still very evident today. One more question for Dr. Babiak from Lecom Health. Again, you read the trades, you watch the YouTubes. Um, is there anything really cool coming down that uh, could 
could be another level of of real strong mitigation against this virus. You know, like a patch or or some kind of uh, un- thing that you put under your tongue. I mean, what what are what are these uh, uh, research and development uh, uh, big pharma folks working on these days? I really I haven't seen too much. Okay. If I had to uh, speculate, and this is just purely my hypothesizing, I would think maybe what we're going to be seeing is uh, a combination uh, COVID booster and flu shot. Oh, like a so cocktail. That, you know, yeah, just like a, you know, if we remember a few years back, uh, we had the H1N1 virus. Mm-hmm. Then they had then moved the H1N1 uh, vaccination in with the, your annual flu shot. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, moving forward, we would see somebody come out with a combination uh, COVID booster and uh, a flu shot so that you could have both vaccines as, you know, your one annual dose in the fall and giving you that protection throughout the season. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, uh, you, you know, as far as as kind of like, hey, let me just let me just get get uh, settled in on this stuff. What about what about other other vaccinations? Do you feel like um, people fell behind on their shingles shots and their uh, what what is it? The pneumonia? What is what's that pneumonia shot that you ask the old folks to take and? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, there's, there's the, the pneumonia vaccine, but yes, uh, it, it's even greater than just vaccinations. Uh, I think we saw during the pandemic uh, a lot of delay in care. Yeah. Uh, a lot of individuals have put off their uh, physical health due to the pandemic, and vaccinations are, are a part of that. You know, our routine and scheduled vaccinations. Uh, we absolutely saw a decrease in those during the throughout the pandemic because of the COVID pandemic itself. We'll leave it there. We got we got to make sure that people take care of themselves and, and not let a risk of one disease affect you on 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 something that could even be more serious, right, Doctor Babiak? I mean, honestly, we've you got to take care of all of yourself. Absolutely, a holistic approach to medicine. Dr. Marcus Babiak, he is the CEO and pharmacy director at Lecom Health. Thank you, sir. We really, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Joel. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>